Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 162. We're recording on Thursday, June 16th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I'm here with Jeff O'Neill. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. Happy Bloomsday. Oh, right. Yeah, that's a thing. The Bloomsday. 616. The Bloomsdayest of Bloomsday. 616. Um, have you read Ulysses? I have not, and I don't think I'm ever going to. No. Okay. I totally understand. Uh, I just finished a book about the trial of Ulysses, uh, which is, you know, how Ulysses came to America. It's super mm-hmm. interesting. Ulysses is amazing, but it's impossible and crazy and whatever. But, uh, you What's know, I was thinking, it's, it's, it's a book. Um, there's no other book that has a day. Is there? Um, like there's a, well, I, I'm trying you know, to, th- I'm trying we have to th- towel day for towel day. Okay. Yeah. May 25th for mm-hmm. hitchhiker's guide. That, okay. That's yeah. another one. You got me. There's one more. Yeah. Um, I guess but, the other, you know, what's the one that you guys always talk about at empire records? What's the thing? Oh, check. Rex Manning. Day. Yeah, Rex Manning day. But like, the, it's, it's interesting, you know, that in these, you know, we all consume these books and movies and, but there's very few specific dates attached to things. Yeah, there's oh, and whatever the day is that Marty McFly goes to. Oh, October twenty fifth, nineteen eighty five. I think. Yeah. That's well, what and it then is. when he he goes like into the future, is it is sometime in like twenty fifteen? I think. Oh yeah, and then um, it's October twenty fifth, nineteen fifty five. I think it's yeah. October twenty. Uh, and because I remember last year, people being like, "This is the day that right. Marty McFly came to in the future." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, Bloomsday. Well, and the whole Bloomsday is that like that's a straighter connection than Towel Day because the whole story of Ulysses takes place it's on one day, right. June sixteenth, right? And, and Towel um, Day is just that's the day that Earth. Uh, spoiler alert for the first ten pages of Hitchhiker's Guide <laughs> to the Galaxy is uh, Earth gets destroyed to make way for an intergalactic highway. May 25th, also Bob's birthday. Oh, there you go. Also, mm-hmm. June 16th is the day purportedly, do you know the story of Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein? Yes, you know I story? do. She mm-hmm. woke up in the middle of the night and she had had this dream about sort of a, I think the, the phrase is like a corpse or a, a, a figure laid out on a table. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it became, and I think she wrote it in like three days or something after that. Like, Isn't the whole story about that too, that like she and... A bunch of the other like famous writers of the time were on some sort of retreat together, or am I mixing I'm, up my like, they did high go school on retreats, English? Uh, but I don't know if that was a, a Percy Percy Shelley, and I don't know if yeah. it was during that. Um, while we're playing literary one trivia, oh man, I'm just screwed now. <laughs> but another dream sequence was um, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, mm. where uh, uh, Stevenson had a dream where he woke up and he's like, "What if there was a." A, a person who had two lives and they didn't know about each other. So that's Dreams, Bloomsday, Stream of Consciousness, Free Association. That's probably this a fitting seems, tribute to Bloomsday. Yeah, this to, seems to appropriate. Um, we'll try to avoid um, the really uh, the, the salacious and crude stuff in Ulysses. Uh, so let's do our first sponsor before we go on to Audible. Audible's back. The premier place to get your audiobooks over 250 
thousand. That's a quarter of a million. Yeah, quarter. So many. I, I'm sure if we're still doing the podcast in like two or three years, that's going to be a million at some point. I, I don't know. That's that's a lot. I feel like maybe we've gone through the back catalog of what mostly of what hasn't been put on audiobook. Um, and so now mm-hmm. it's just new times, but we're doing about 37,000 new audiobooks a year, according to Publishers Weekly. So crazy. I guess we have a uh, 20 or so years to go before we hit a million. But anyway, their app is free, works on iPhones, iPads, Androids, and Windows phone. You can download and listen on your Kindle Fire and over 500 MP3 player. If you have an MP3 player, still, I salute your dedication um, to that technology. We're still putting a, a AAA battery in the back of your Creative Zen um, unlike a streaming or rental service with Audible, you own your books. And I guess these are really just files, right? They're not physical books like we're used to. But you can access them anytime, even if you're no longer a member. As long as Audible's around, you can access your files right on your phone. Great listen guarantee. You decide to like the book you choose, not a problem. Exchange any book you aren't happy with another title anytime. No questions asked. Literally, you don't have to call. It's built in. Super easy to do from the website. Um, I just So before I talk about my pick, Audible Podcast Dom's audiblepodcast.com slash bookwrite today to start your free trial. Um, that supports the show, let you know for us, and you get a free 30-day trial. audiblepodcast.com slash bookwrite. I'm, I'm on a tear of books. All the uh, print, digital, audio, I don't know what's going You're on with me. You're doing that summer reading yeah, magic. I guess so. It's getting nice. Um, I, I've been staying up and working, getting I have trouble sleeping right now, so I've been reading. Ah, uh, my d- summer insomnia caught you. Yeah, I, I can fall asleep, but I'm waking up at like four. Anyway, no mm-hmm. one cares about other people's sleep <laughs> problems. Uh, the only thing more boring is telling you about the dreams I'm not having while I'm not sleeping. Um, Grunt by Mary Roach, I just finished. Uh, How was it on audio? Is she great? She, she's I, Does she read it? I think she does read it. Now that you mentioned that, I hadn't put that together. I think she does. I thought it was really interesting. I am not sure it's my favorite Mary Roach. Um... What did you think of? What do you it's think? It's not of? my favorite Mary Roach, yeah. but I mean, she started with such a bang. Like Stiff is so good, yeah, um, and just so weird, uh, and like no one, it would occur to no one else to write a book about what happens to corpses after they're donated right. to science. I, like, I think that's a good point, and and I think what my it's not really a problem. It's just what makes it different is this subject is actually way bigger somehow the mm-hmm. the science of humans at war like every single chapter could be an old book like stuff about life on a submarine like all the stuff about that i was like that could be its own book uh, yeah, that's about true. clothes at war mm-hmm. like you know uh, medicine and war. like each one of those is it could be a huge book it's a it's a much bigger space behind the curtain yes there. Yeah, yeah yeah so i i, I kind of felt like just as each chapter you're getting into it you're like and now for the next act you know i was like what but what but uh, yeah, I wish that there were like a video version of this for some of it when she was talking in, um, I read it in print, but when mm. she talks in Grunt about like being in the cafeterias of like, military yes. bases and trying to get these like big burly special ops guys. Yeah, that they I do pictured. with the beard in the corner, just like grunts. And it's like, right. what do you want? Yeah, like I picture them all as like a grislier Chris Pratt circa zero dark 30, like, yep. you know. Exactly. Black ops military guys, and she's trying to get them to talk about like, did you ever get the trots in a place where you couldn't get to the bathroom? And they're all embarrassed, and they're like, actually, <laughs> yeah, all the time. Yeah, but like Mary Roach talking to these burly guys about poop is a thing that you just want to see. Yeah, and you know, like there's some great. She does. She actually does a very good job with the visual weirdness, like of putting a cot between the forty-three foot tall missile silos and a, and mm-hmm. a Trident class missile sub. Like you're sleeping between these warheads, and it feels weirder than being fifty feet away. Though if after something happened, it just so wouldn't matter if right. you were fifty feet away. <laughs> um, so I, I, I get again. I'd say it's of course I love Mary Roach, and if you like Mary Roach, you're gonna like it. Um, 
But it w- I had this weird experience of like, usually she goes such a deep dive, you know, mm-hmm. like packing for Mars. It seems more specific. And this is the field of, of battle literally is so big and there's so many fronts to it. Um, that it felt a little bit more, I guess, episodic. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Usually her books are, it's narrow but deep, and this one felt much, you know, wider. Right. Uh, and so you can't go quite as deep onto any of, of the things. But an interesting thing, I'm always like, what is she going to decide is next? Mm-hmm. Like we played the game with Mukherjee, right? Right, like, right. And we said, think, I think we said the brain would be a next one that would make mm-hmm. sense for him. Um, yeah, I think that... You know, actually a brain, I actually I'd like a brain book from Roach and Mukherjee. Like, so I, like they'd write such the different same books. Time. Yeah. They should do all their research together. And then see like just what comes out. How, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. It's like the, it's like the people that, what's that old cliche about, you know, blind people, they touch different parts of the elephant. They're all describing a different animal. Like something mm-hmm. similar would happen with Mukherjee in Roach. Like they'd have such completely different, um, yeah, a Mary uh, Roach neuroscience book would be fascinating. Uh, Mukherjee's so cerebral, and mm-hmm. Roach is so corporeal. Like, the body, like, she's not a... I don't know that Mukherjee isn't, just not his tact. But, like, she's, like... she. You can see her as, like, the one that's, like, all dirt. You can see that Mukherjee's, like, a doctor. Like, he has a very yes, clinical yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and Roach is, like... You can see her, you know, as a, fi- like a field reporter... Like mm-hmm. with the pith helmet on, like up to her mud and like well, all that kind of thing. She she is. And what was the one about? I cannot remember the title of it. The one she did about the gut, like the whole gulp. digestive gulp. Yeah, gulp. in gulp, she like sticks her arm into yeah. a hole cut in the side of a cow to Not explore afraid. its intestines. Like she just does the thing. Um, she's. I think Mary Roach is like the Beyonce of narrative nonfiction. Like she does it with her whole body. Yeah, definitely. Not afraid. I mean, in Grunt, she's like smelling and eating stuff that really made my stomach turn even on audio. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, that's what I, that's, that was my, my recent pick again. And I am, I love Roach on audio. Michelle and I both love Roach on audio. Even a not the best Mary Roach is still a really good Mary Roach. Um, and, I, and I hate doing dad book picks. I don't know if we want to <laughs> vent about this right now. Just how, I mean, how essentializing and, I mean, I get it. I mean, there's some kernel of truth to the war and nonfiction, but an unbelievable dad book, Grunt by mm, Mary Roach. Yes. Um, if, you're, if you have a dad that likes military history and nonfiction, this might be a way of sort of spin the cue ball at them a little when bit and see if they Mary can Mary Roach it. footnotes are kind of the dad joke of footnotes. Yeah, she definitely has a, she has, um, she's an honorary dad uh, when, <laughs> when it comes to some of this stuff. It's true. Do you have an audio book? Um, I'm sorry, yeah, we went on yeah, and on, no, but both we had read it. So, the, so I, we just listened to Nosferatu by oh, Lord. Joe Hill. And uh, it's uh, it, creepy, but so then we started, Bob and I started The Fireman uh, on the drive to the beach last week. And the it's a big book, and the yeah. audio book is like 23 hours oh, long. Lord. Um, so we're I think we're like seven hours into it. Kate Mulgrew narrow, uh, narrates it also. And it's so good. It is so good. She's just the she's just a perfect narrator. Um, I have no quibbles. The story is really fascinating. It's the, it's for me, it's the exact right kind of fiction, like fiction that makes a really good. Yes. Yeah. Fiction for audiobook. Like for me, fiction that makes a really good movie where I can see it play out in my head is the, like, that's the only kind of fiction I can do on audiobook. If it's too languagey, I just, I have to 
read it. Sure. And Joe Hill just tells a great story. And there's so many interesting visual elements to it that like to be the passenger, especially on a road trip uh, where I didn't have to attend to anything else except imagining all of these things happening in front of me is so, so wonderful. So like the setup of the fireman is that there is an epidemic of spontaneous combustion happening mm. where people um, get this contagious spore that gives them uh, something called dragon scale that appears to look like swirling black, basically like swirling black tattoos on your skin and it cracks and also has like gold elements. And when the people get like all worked up emotionally or too many of them get in one place together, the dragon scale emits smoke. Their bodies literally smoke. And then if you get too much of the dragon scale, you um, explode into flames. Uh, And so the main character is a nurse and she has been in a hospital treating people with dragon scale and then she gets it and then she meets this guy who calls himself the fireman Mm. uh and it goes from there it's so good it's so good i have a million more hours of it but i'm looking forward to that that it's a bit of a hit it seems Uh, i don't know if we talked about it but it was on um i think it was on the new york times bestseller list when it came out which for a horror novel Mm -hmm. is a big deal yeah Um, you know that's not that's not his dad right (laughs) yeah and i was gonna say like that's also a it's a quirkier dad pick if you're doing like last mm. minute uh father's day actually by the time you're listening to this father's day will be over but oh, if you forgot true. to buy your dad a book for father's day the fireman uh if dad likes dark scary stuff would be excellent um good so audiblepodcast.com slash book right um I w- thank you for giving us excuse to talk about a couple books we like uh we, oh, always we should while we're talking audiobooks, too, we should mention our great colleague, Rachel Smalter-Hall, uh, yes. is doing a biweekly audiobooks newsletter um, for Book Riot, kind of about all things audiobook, um, about new releases and about what's going on in the world of audiobooks. And she does great recommendations. She might be an even more voracious audiobook consumer than you are. It um, might be. Uh, she yeah. knits. So there's a lot of uh, – I don't have a hobby – well – I don't like things. So um, <laughs> I don't like to have a hobby that's super conducive to also listening to an audiobook for. So I really, I really am just doing it in my doing other stuff time. Like yeah. when I, when basketball season rolls around or college basketball season rolls around again, I can watch basketball and listen to audiobooks. But yeah, she, she loved reviews, uh, recommendations, news about audiobooks. Um, you know, there's one thing that's cool about, like what I said before, there's new audiobooks and new versions coming out. Um, I just saw, what would I just... Haley Atwell was narrating something. Gosh darn it. There's a, she's, I can't remember what it is. I think it might be a play. But anyway, speaks to the point, like Scarlett Johansson did Alice in Wonderland. They've got some other people to do classics. under the public domain, which is convenient for everyone involved, um, I guess, unless you're Lewis Carroll's estate. Um, you know, so the new performances of these things, very interesting to go there. So um, we'll put a link in the show notes to subscribe. It's every other week. Um, she does a great job with it. Okay, we have no lead story this week. We don't. There's just a bunch of little, little interesting... Yeah, it's going to be a, 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 like an a extended lightning round kind of deal. Where do you want to start? Why don't you pick? Ah, let's talk about most frequently stolen books. Yeah. Let's talk so, about it. Yeah, you like that? I, okay. I did. Well, I found the link, so of course I like it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I linked so, to it, yeah. Uh, Kotke.org this week, Jason Kotke um, ran a post because Vintage Anchor tweeted out a photo of the most stolen bookshelf yes. from a bookstore, which is a great idea for a bookstore. Excellent idea display and it has a bunch of murakami on it i really kind of want to i really want to know what bookstore this is um murakami is frequently stolen brett easton ellis a bunch of the great vonnegut paperbacks Mm -hmm. naked lunch fight club um so like some interesting themes yeah it's definitely a how am i going to put this um a nerdy 17 year old dude's reading list is what it looks like 
Yeah. You know, a white guy. It, it looks like my. No, no, seriously. It looks like my no, no, reading list does. when I'm 17. Mm-hmm. Let's save the Brett Easton Ellis because I can't handle the gore and general yeah. misanthropy. Um, but like On the Road is on there. Bunch of Murakami. Uh, Bukowski, you know, it's kind of it's kind of crazy. Um, no women, it doesn't look like. No, and he links back to um, some research that was done in 2014 yeah. about um, most frequently stolen books in other places, and uh, from libraries, the Guinness Book of Records tops the list. That must be that's got to be kids. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. The the Bible. When I worked at Barnes and Noble, that we the Bible was the leading thing. Like all the various editions of the Bible were the most frequent to disappear. Nicked, huh? It is like they're. You know, they should have worked that in the commandments. <laughs> if, only. if only. I always thought there was a kind of delicious irony. Yeah, right, right, right. Uh, to that, exam prep books, art books, like big coffee table books are are pretty frequently stolen. But from bookstores, uh, this piece too notes that anything by Bukowski or William S. Burroughs and On the Road. Um, also, The Great Gatsby. Um, but maybe just more most frequently stolen because also very frequently assigned yeah, to students right. or just you know at the top of uh, at the top of people's lists. The New York trilogy by Paul Auster as of twenty fourteen. Boy, I would not have guessed that. one. I would never have gotten. That. And I like that, but boy, I wouldn't. I like. Paul. Yeah, yeah, I would not have guessed that. Uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, yeah, yeah. The Virgin Suicides, yeah. Steal This Book, which I mean, the book tells you what to do, <laughs> uh, and The Alchemist. Which I guess also not terribly surprising just for how visible and uh, popular that book was a few years ago. There's also a link to a list from the UK in 2009, just because that looks like it was the most recent available that Kotke could find. Kotke.org. Kotke is one of the original sort of, I don't know what you call it, sort of renaissance aggregators. Yeah, yeah. He just links to all sorts of interesting stuff. A good follow on Twitter or RSS if you do those sorts of things, Jason. It's just at Kotke, K-O-T-T-K-E. The top two in London... In the UK, where London A to Z, which if you've ever okay. been, is like the famous, the famous travel guide. Like it's a street guide to London. Mm. Um, and two is Lonely Planet Europe, also a travel guide. So okay. people visiting the UK, um, backpackers, travelers, whatever, people on a <laughs> budget. Ah, like, oh, damn, I forgot my book. Yeah, the old five-finger discount um, mm-hmm. for, for those. So uh, interesting. We'll put the link there. You can see what they are there. So don't steal books. But um, if you do, uh, we're glad that someone's com- – Compounding the data. Yeah. All uh, right. I guess it's my pick I, next. Hmm? Yeah, yeah. Where do you want to yeah, go? Let's see. I'm coming back from my link. I, I thought this was a couple of library stories, um, and mm-hmm. actually one we didn't put in here uh, that I'll mention right now. The Chicago Public Libraries for their summer reading program. Do you see this story? It's not no, in the I don't show notes. So. They're giving away 12 books, giving them t- to kids who want them 12 books for the summer, giving them. Uh, oh, that's awesome. Up I love to that. a million books they're trying to give Good away. Good job, Chicago. Good job. I mean, they, they say, People, kids want to read. One thing they said um, is that, you know, kids sometimes can't get to the library, on their, especially in Chicago, big city. They may not have a branch close. If you're seven, you're not riding the subway or taking a cab by yourself, or your mom and dad or your guardian or grandpa has to work, whatever it might be. So the, the, you can keep them. You don't have to worry about giving them back. They're yours. We just saw this study recently. Um, and I don't know, the, I don't think we talked about it on the show. It might be worth talking about at some point. We're not doing it today. Where there's this stat about this 10 book in your house thing. Yes. Yeah. That, like, if you have, we have 10, talked about that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that it seems even with controlling for you know parents' education, other things going on, it seems to matter that and it's ten is a critical number. Like it doesn't scale up to fifty, hundred, two hundred, something like that. Yeah, it's just the presence of at least ten books. Which mm-hmm. I still don't see a compelling. I don't see a compelling compelling explanation for um, yet. I, I don't really understand. But 
the 12 is more than 10, clearly. So it also does that thing of putting books into a kid's house, um, some that may not have it there. thought that was very cool. Got on Chicago, related to that Multnomah County, which is now the county I live in. Uh, which is why this is in the show which notes. Which is why this is in the show notes, as waiving l- late fines at the libraries for all kids. If you, had a, uh, if, if you had a late fine, bang, gone. 600 grand in late fines are wiping. Yeah, patrons that are 17 or younger. 17 or younger. Um, so uh, also very cool. I, I mean, I guess it, you. I guess as a library is using, I mean, what this is basically doing is using budgets to make it easier for kids to check out more books, right? I mean, yeah, getting away all the friction. You have a fine. Don't worry about your. Don't worry about your twelve to twelve dollar fine for uh, for uh, Rick Riordan. Right, come in and check something out. We'll, we'll amnesty the fine. Well, I think it's also libraries recognizing um, or or re acknowledging who their most target target audience mm-hmm. is, and sometimes what it takes to serve that target audience. Um, the spokesperson from the Multnomah County Library in this piece is Sean Cunningham, and he says that um, it's like six hundred and four thousand yeah. dollars in fines, and if your fine is outstanding for too long, then your account gets blocked and they yep. recognized that very many of the blocked accounts were from kids who lived in high poverty areas. That's not a surprise. So, they don't have 10 yeah, bucks no. to pay for right, it. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, and you can you can draw that straight line. They can't pay their library fine and then their library access is blocked and those are not kids who are then just going to go buy books right. instead. They're not going to fly um, to Chicago the, to get their 12 books. So it's not right, happen. yeah. The library, it looks to me, which is great, has recognized like we want to serve these kids and the way that we can do that is by putting our budget towards uh, amnesty for these late fees so that they can come back to the library so that they can get books so that the library can do what the library is supposed to do. Um, And this is not the first time that a library has offered amnesty. We see stories about this relatively frequently. And yeah, uh, libraries seem to do this from time to time, right? Like you bring in your library books, we'll wipe it away. Don't worry. It's kind of a reset. Because one thing Mm -hmm. I think that happens is not only are the fines not paid um, and the, the patrons aren't using the library, but then the books are out of circulation, right? Because they're in someone's right. closet or, you know, their yeah, wall of shame the, somewhere. They want the books back in circulation. They also need to keep their circulation numbers up yes. and keep their patron numbers up so they can continue to get funding. So it's a it's a smart move to get all those people back in the door um, so that they can continue checking out books and making the library look busy and important. And you know, That's one thing I always forget of. about libraries is that those circulation numbers directly connect to funding. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, it, you know, check out a few extra books, bring them back. Uh, <laughs> Michelle and I, whenever we get a late fee, and we do from time to time, not going to lie. We always think of it as a donation towards the libraries. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, just, uh, you don't give it up forever. It makes us feel you a little know, better. I about wonder it. if any libraries have ever tried, like, you know, for like some sort of a bonus membership, like a hmm. um, like a freemium model for your public library. Like I actually, I have not checked anything out from the Henrico County Library yeah. here in Richmond in like seven years because I did when we first moved here and I like lost the book and then had a late fee. Yeah, and it, 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 just it, got... it can cascade into, you know what? No, nope, I'm not, I can't <laughs> it touch that. It got so that. bad that like I sent them a check, but I just became ashamed. Right. No, <laughs> like, it happens, man. That I if totally I went agree. in to check something out, they would scan my card they would know that I was the person who had done that so like I have had this imaginary sh- fear of this like you mean like they're gonna get a pop-up saying happen. be sure to scowl at this woman she behaved yes, very no, exactly. badly like I'm gonna walk in and as soon as I walk in um, a bubble's gonna appear over my head that only the librarians can <laughs> like see it, like at the like, grocery store they have like the checks that have bounced like do not you know like yes, they do this no, stuff exactly. like <laughs> like I'm gonna be on the wall of shame at the Henrico County Library uh-huh. um, so I just don't use our local library system mainly because I'm embarrassed that I let that 
happen. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, if they would do like pay us 50 bucks a year and you won't have to think about late fees, I mm. would 100% do that. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've, 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 you know, I wrote that post a while about, about private lending libraries. You know, I've kind of always liked the idea about that. Mm. Any any sort of paid additional to the library does feel like. Yeah, I agree. I think there, I would use something like that, but it does feel a little bit like introducing first class in the library system. Yeah, that's which true. I don't, I don't know if that's. The um, well, I mean, yeah, you'd be paying a fee to not pay fees, fees right? Um, which, but it would whatever. be cool to like do it as a fundraiser for, um, like, what if you could write a check that would cover someone else's library? Oh, fees? I like that. Yep, I like that. That'd be cool. I would happily do that. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, let's move one more library story. This one I thought was also very interesting. Um, there are there is a I'm not sure what's going on here, but there's a a campaign. I guess no one's actually doing it yet, by basically advocates um, f- for people with autism mm. uh, about you know changing expected behavioral norms at libraries because especially kids with autism or you know adults with autism too, it's it's difficult and sometimes impossible for them. To obey sort of our cultural expectation of how yeah. one behaves in the library. And right. it's, it's sit there with your book and be, be quiet, quiet and don't right. move around, right? The very the, – the school marmiest version of what you expect a library to be. Um, and kids with autism, they move and they talk and they have trouble, A, controlling – volume and their movement sometimes and be understanding social norms like even they may not there's not really a sign that says this is how you behave at the library you sort of are supposed to i think when you're a kid under your parents say or someone who takes you they'll be quiet and shh and all that yeah, you're stuff just going supposed on. to magically absorb you're supposed it. To magically, it was one of the hardest things for for people uh with autism to do and this is sort of ex, ex, is saying does it have to be this way could you do special hours could we just not does the library need to be quiet i guess is maybe the underlying assumption here which is a super interesting thing to me. I just read mm-hmm. Neurotribes by Steve Silverman, which completely changed my understanding and appreciation and sort of empathy uh, for people with autism. Um, and this makes a lot of sense to me. You don't have to – does it have to be – I mean, do you think it has to be quiet? I, I wonder no, about that. No, I think if you want a place to be quiet – Go home. Like, Go in your room and shut the door. There's no reasonable expectation of silence anywhere else in public, including the quiet car on Amtrak, which promises you exactly that. And that you're even paying for. Like a big timer. Big time Shinsky in the quiet car. (laughs) Yeah, I will be the sheriff of the quiet car. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, but that's not a public utility. And people opt into sitting in the quiet car because they want quiet. I would really be interested, and maybe some of our librarian listeners know this, what the history of the expectation of silence in libraries is, where that even comes from. because it is, it's the only place I can think, like maybe church, you know, you're not supposed to talk in the yeah, middle church, of the sermon. Right. Um, but it's, I, I just don't think that there's a reason. Well, even you some churches, to, you know, there's call and response and there's other stuff going on that could, that could right, yeah, provide cover for someone with autism, honestly, that they mm-hmm. don't sort of stick out um, and feel embarrassed or out of place or shamed. Um, yeah, it's very, doing. it's very interesting. I've never really thought about why yeah. we expect libraries to be quiet. And now I'd really like to know, but I don't think there's any reason that a library has to be quiet, especially because you can get a library card and check out the library book and take it home. Um, or in most cases, if they're like, if you're using some special resource that you're not allowed to check out, you could probably get one of the like 
private conference rooms or like quiet areas. Um, But it seems to me that as we have a better understanding of what life experiences are like for people who aren't neurotypical, we need to make our public places correspond. Yeah. You know, with that understanding, and well, if, and the percentages about people that are neurotypical are pretty surprising, especially yes. that number. You know, there's this sort of panic, like you know, people are trying to ex- understand why neuroatypical diagnoses are going up. I think from the book, my understanding is it's that we're more sensitive, right? There's just more. Mm-hmm. You, you don't have to be, you don't have to have as severe of symptoms um, to get a diagnosis. There also might be some cultural things that there really are people that have more autistic characteristics. It's not really clear at this point. Um, but I think it's time. This is Because the flip phenomenon, which is sort of interesting, too, is the rise of people working in co-working open office spaces and coffee shops, right? Yeah. Like if, if, if we're finding that people kind of don't need dead silence to like do their work, then that seems to me it could bleed over into – the library. Now, I, I don't know that we want it to be a playground necessarily, and I'm one that has taken my kids to libraries and seen, you know, I'm not sure that's what we're looking for either. Um, but there's, I think there's a happy medium where people can be who they are. Yes. Um, and, and also, you know, people, the other, and people who aren't necessarily like that themselves can just deal with it. Well, and the library's job is to serve their community and yep. provide access to information and access to education about how to access that mm-hmm. information. I mean, maybe um, in, in library to, design, one thing that might help is like a quiet room. Like sure. most, like a quiet car that anyone can have access yes, to. Yes, so. right. If you need silence, you can go in here. But the like the library's job is to make everyone in the community feel welcome. And also it's a service to the community at large if everyone gets more comfortable yes. with the existence of people who have autism or are on the autism spectrum out in the world. You know, if you go into your, like the library can be a front runner in this way that if libraries are less restrictive about quiet, if you are a person in the library, if you're taking your kids into the library and there's a person with autism who's, you know, demonstrating any of the behaviors that uh, sometimes happen for people on the spectrum, mm-hmm. that's an opportunity to to learn about. Like, right. this is a way that some people experience life and this is a behavior that some people exhibit and it's, you know, no, it, it's not weird. It's no less normal than right. anyone else. Um, it's nothing to stare at. Like, it, we can Nothing to be you know, ashamed of, nothing that needs to exactly. be policed like, or medicated. Right. It's not, you don't need to police this. We don't need to make this person ashamed. We don't make fun of people. Um, it's an opportunity to educate the public um, about, as you were talking about the Steve Silberman book, exactly that, that we have very many people in our society and in our communities who deal with autism and they need to, they deserve to go through life and access all of the services uh, that everyone else has access to and to be comfortable. And then you've got communities of people who like, maybe then when you're in the grocery store with your kid, Mm -hmm. your kid doesn't stare or make a rude comment um, because they've experienced that with the library. It seems to me like this is another place that the library can really be a leader. I think, and again, I'm, I'm probably wrong about this, but I think I remember hearing that this sort of cultural norm of libraries as quiet spaces like goes back to like middle age monastic libraries where that's where all the books were. And you just didn't talk. I mean, it was mm-hmm. just quiet. And also, initially, I mean, for a long time, and I don't. I wish I knew my dates better about this than I, I used to know them better than I do now. You you didn't read silently. You would like you would read aloud quietly to yourself. And so you can imagine that if you had 10 or 12 monks in a room all trying to mm. read to themselves, you can't, you can't be very loud. You have to sort of yeah, be real Yeah, it's like uh, mumbling hush. over mumbling. Um, so I think some of it is vestigial 
you know, I, I guess it's hard to read with a, I don't know, we can read on airplanes and outside, and I don't know, is it really that hard to read if it's loud? I mean, I'm sure for some people, everyone's different, blah, blah, blah. But on the whole, it doesn't seem to me that you need dead quiet to enjoy your and book well, or do what you're I doing. I just think the expectation of silence in a public place is not right. reasonable. Yeah, right, right. Well, even if, yeah, right. Even if some people really do like that, is that enough to sort of impose that Right, and like the fact that some people really do like it, it, to me at least, that's not compelling enough. Like, so what? Some people really like it. Right. Some people, you know, some people like to clip their toenails oh, at the airport. On. I have what witnessed that. That doesn't mean we need to do it. Well, I, I'm just saying, even if there were some sort of materially recognizable, categorizable, uh, quantitative data that showed that mm. your comprehension goes down for every five deaths, you know, whatever, you know, I'm just sort of spitballing. Yeah. So go, I mean, go, go in the quiet room or go there earlier, take it home or when, find another place. You know, like purely anecdotally, we've had these conversations like on the back channels of right. Book Riot where people talk about their reading habits and like, do you listen to music while you read? Can the TV be on while you read? Like I've talked about how I get most of my reading in the summer done with baseball on mm-hmm. in the background. It's like a, I have a Pavlovian response at this point. <laughs> like Bob turns baseball on and I start reading. Um, and like some people can have noise and some people can't. And as you said, like people read on planes or you have white noise or you need total Right. Silence or you can listen to music that's just music, but no words like everybody has a different threshold for it. And so it seems really strange to me to build a social norm around like one one of those options. Yeah, I guess it made I mean, the the time that Silence and Library was really key to me was when I was at college, right? Like studying mm. um, up at uh, Watson Library at KU or at, at the great Butler Library at Columbia, um, which maybe is a different use case. You know, I'm not sure about that. Uh, you know, but we're talking about public libraries here that have kids and other people and yeah. um, uh, open access to the community. All right. I'm glad this is a conversation that we're having. I am glad be, too, very much It'll be so. really interesting to see what libraries do in response. If you're a librarian and your library is doing something yeah. uh, in response for your patrons on the autism spectrum, please drop us a line, podcast.bookriot.com. Yeah, we'd, we'd love to know more about it. Yeah, I, yeah, I'd love to, you know, things about the social norms of quietude in libraries too, if you have any insight. All right. That's a show title. Yeah, right. Uh, you want to tell me about our next sponsor? We better do that. Yeah. Our next sponsor is The Girls by Emma Klein. Big book of the summer. Uh, It's the story of Evie. She's a woman who is haunted by the summer of 1969 when she was a lonely 14-year-old girl growing up in Northern California. Uh, One day she sees a girl at a park. The girl has a gang of other girls who seem free and alive, and she's totally mesmerized by them, uh, by one girl named Suzanne in particular. Evie is drawn into their soon-to-be infamous cult. Uh, Hint, hint, if you know the story of the Mansons, then... uh, if you know one or two cults, you know which cult we're yeah. talking about. <laughs> and she meets the man who is its charismatic leader. Uh, as Evie's obsession with Suzanne intensifies, Evie does not realize that she's coming closer and closer to unthinkable violence and to the moment in a girl's life when everything can go wrong. This is just tons of buzz for this book this tons. summer. Um, I've started reading it. I haven't finished it yet. The writing is really beautiful. Uh, so like a compelling story about a cult uh, that always makes for interesting storytelling with great writing. It's a debut. Um, Emma Klein, big new voice. Uh, so thank you again to The Girls by Emma Klein for sponsoring us this week. Yeah, thank you so much, Emma Klein. The Girls. Uh, awesome cover, too. Really striking yeah, cover. Yeah, great cover. Uh, let's do, you know, let's go, uh, we had library corner. Let's go back to the, the publishing industry, um, story about the decline in the number of jobs mm. in publishing. Um, over the last two decades, book publishers have shed over 25 
thousand jobs. That is many jobs. Um, it's a huge, huge hit. Um, really, second only to newspapers. Newspapers have lost three hundred and fifty thousand jobs. Isn't that crazy? There are now more people working in internet publishing and broadcasting than are working at newspapers. Which I know it's. I think that's one of those things that feels like it could have been true for a while now, right? Does that make mm-hmm. sense? But it's yeah, yeah. To, to look in nineteen ninety, there's a chart. We'll drop the link in the show notes. In nineteen ninety, where they there's this chart that it shows jobs by sector. In 1990, it looks like there were 10,000 people working in internet publishing and broadcasting. That, it, it's 20 times that now to 200,000. Yeah. And there's an interesting like set of overlaps here. It looks like in about 1999, yeah. uh, internet was like the first time that internet jobs intersected, like it had, the, had about the same You can number. see the bubble in the jobs. Yeah, right. That internet jobs, there were just as many internet jobs as book jobs mm-hmm. in 1999. And then in the early 2000s, there were more internet jobs and then it dips and they meet again in 2001. And then from basically 2008 on, yeah. there have been more internet jobs than book jobs. And since about 2012, there have been more internet jobs than jobs at periodicals. I mean, in two or three years, I mean, if this trend continues at all, there's going to be more jobs in internet publishing and broadcasting than in periodicals, newspapers, and books combined. Mm-hmm. Um, well, interestingly, the uh, motion picture and video production, I guess that's not a surprise, if, especially if you think about yeah. internet video production. Uh, that's ticking up, too. There are more of those than anything else. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, though, even that, that 25,000 jobs... It is a big number, and I don't want to minimize it, but compared to the declines in the other business, in, in newspapers and periodicals, mm-hmm. it actually looks pretty steady. I mean, it, it, of the three of them, it's held up the best, which is interesting. It's not the most precipitous job no, it by isn't. far. Some of it was just there weren't as many, um, mm-hmm. so there's not as many to lose. I do wonder if that's helped Rep- yeah, those good profitability numbers we've seen over the last couple of years from publishers. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. just not carrying as much overhead. Yep. They don't have as many um, um, bodies to support there. but And, and really... The, inter- the the internet jobs thing was it was a a slower ascent with that one big bubble around you know the bubble the tech bubble in two thousand two thousand one went back below books had as many as books starting in two thousand eight but since then it's starting to do one of those hockey stick numbers like yep. since two thousand eight has been a huge I think my sense of it is and I I pay a little bit of attention to media and publishing on the internet and VCs and startups. I think we're going to see a little bit of a dip now over the next couple of years, but then it's going to go back to, to going up. And who knows where it's going to plateau, as all things will. But boy, that newspaper one is really, really – I mean, you, you feel it, but then to see it in a graph like that is, is pretty striking. Yeah, and just to put some actual numbers on yeah. it, um, in 1990, newspapers had 455,000 jobs, and now newspapers, as of 2016, have – Wait, I can't get my mouse in the right spot. 184,000. So just proportionally, that's a huge jump. Uh, But book publishing had 91, had 85,000 jobs Mm -hmm. in 1990 and now has 61,000. So that's, you know, more of like that 25,000 is a more than 25% drop. Huge haircut. Um, Really proportionally a big, a big dip. Though, like I say about all these numbers that show a decline in books or publishing and reading, you know, if you if you think that's that's with the internet baked in, like that's from mm-hmm. ninety, which is completely pre anything digital. Like the, I don't, I mean, I guess probably maybe there was someone at DARPA that had you know Ethernet or whatever. But right when we were, st- I was starting to go to college um, in ninety six. I got my first email address. I think ninety three, ninety four was the rise of AOL. 
you know, the Kindle comes out in 2006, iPhone comes mm-hmm. out in 2008. That's down, you know, that's down 25% when you've got this huge digital revolution. It doesn't seem that if you would have told me, I guess, I don't know when I would have had my, my most um, dire forecast, ah. probably, probably around 2008, 2009, honestly, mm-hmm. iPhone, well, Kindle, Amazon, independent bookstores are getting slaughtered. I said, boy, there's no way that over this 25-year period, it's only going to be down 25%. I know, yeah. I started blogging in 2008, and that, like, what's going to happen to books feeling was very present really until, like, 2011 or 2012. BEA had that sort of, like, cloud hanging over. Dead Man Walking, starring Sean Penn and Susan Sarandon at BEA. It really was, um, of, like, what is the internet going to do to books, and are e-books going to ruin books? And, you know, now we've had enough time and enough statistics to see that that's not really a concern. Books in some form are here to stay. Uh, but I, yeah, I think 2008, 2009 is probably the direst feeling. And it's not surprising that that was also when, you know, all these internet communities started popping up around yeah. uh, discussing stuff. Yeah, not a surprise at all. Not a surprise at all. So, I mean, this is a little bit of insider baseball. We're, of course, as you might expect, this is an intersection of a lot of our interests uh, mm-hmm. um, as, <laughs> as professionals who work in media and publishing and uh, orthogonal to books, too. Um, but I think a lot of you are probably interested in that kind of stuff as well. And if not, um, you can skip ahead. All right. Uh, what's next? Do you want to go to this Kate Mesner story? Yeah. I think you've been following this more closely than uh, I have. You know, I wasn't following it closely until it sort of became a thing. Uh, I, I was on the tail end of the of the attention curve. But Kate Mesner wrote this book for kids. Um, I think it's middle grade called The Seventh Wish. Um, and, it, you know, it's a fantasy book. as magic and dancing and you know it's like it's a little kid it's a kid's book you know but it's the the theme the underlying theme is about addiction mm-hmm. um heroin heroin specifically. opioids uh, heroin which is an opioid um which is interesting um you know I, this is not my world where i i don't know how common it is for a middle grade book to take on an issue like this or incorporating this but i do know you know, if, if you've been following politics at all recently, you know that there's a thing going on, especially in working class America, of opioid addiction is a huge problem. Um, and a lot of kids are being affected by it. A lot of families are being affected by it. So it seems to me, on the surface level, something that's worth thinking about in a book and having a way for kids to access it. So Mesner was invited um, to speak about her book at a school. The kids had already read copies, you know, some chapters from the book. They're ready to have a conversation, have her talk. And she was disinvited. Um, like the day before, mm-hmm. and basically the 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 reason was, you know, we think there's some kids want to have their innocence, and we're not prepared to have the conversations this kind of thing is is going to bring up. Some stuff has happened after. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. You can sort of follow the blow by blow. But what's inter- I mean, this particular case is interesting, and we're talking about. But I think the thing that really got me interested is thinking about the sort of soft censorship. Like we talk a lot yeah. about on this show, the, you know, there's a book in the library, parent gets upset, there's a petition, public debate, blah, 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 blah. And it gets worked out one way or the other. You know, usually it's some sort of weird compromise. Um, but this is, this is the kind of self-policing that you know has to go on, even before this stage, where they just don't pick books to put in the yeah, library. Because, or they don't, either because they, yeah, right, they, they don't want, the, they want to preserve the kid's innocence or they don't want to have the fight with the parents. They just or, don't want the, the hassle. For right, right. And, and hey, 
I completely sympathize. It seems to me that working in a public elementary school is one of the hardest jobs out there. And, and, and tens and maybe hundreds, I don't even know. I know there are a lot of teachers out there. And I totally sympathize with the not wanting to have to make your day more of a hassle than it already yeah, is. It has to be awful to find yourself between the rock and the hard place yes. of this is a book that could be very important for some of my students. Um, but if I put this book out there, I'm going to have to deal with crap from parents yeah, and I, or maybe even lose my job. And I have much more sympathy. I, I feel bad for Kate Mesner. Like it's one thing, you know, to get disinvited in the kids. And I also totally understand that there are kids out there that have the experience. And I don't have, I don't have a strong position on this because I feel like I feel like I feel I don't see all the sides. I feel like I feel all the sides too. Like yeah, it's very it's, difficult to know about. That. I mean, it seems like the like this it, this particular instance with Kate Mesner and some of the other instances that we've talked about. These are really the symptoms. Yes, they're not the problem. The problem is that we have this underlying structure that we've talked about before of you know educators and librarians feeling like for very good reason um, they have to fear for their jobs or for their interactions with parents and then make their selections about what goes on their syllabus or what goes on their library shelves accordingly because one angry parent who maybe hasn't even read the book mm -hmm. but is going to make a lot of noise can create a lot of trouble um, and the. The school systems are, don't back up these educators and librarians all too frequently. Um, they bow down to one or two or a small group of parents who are angry about a thing. And it, it's clear that that like it's, it's essentially a campaign of fear um, works. It's effective because things like this continue to happen and to point out to us that educators and librarians are making these decisions. Like the the piece that I feel really strongly of it is like this is total like I don't have kids, and so I cannot speak to the parent angle here. But I just feel like whether we're talking about, you know, Sherman Alexi being taken off of eighth grade shelves because parents don't want their kids reading chapters about masturbation, and it's like, spoiler alert, your 14-year-old boy has already figured that out, or you know, fifth graders who live in a community that's affected by opioid addiction, like having their innocence taken, like your kid's innocence is already like actively in the process of removal, basically from the time that their life in public begins, if not before that, depending mm -hmm. on depending on what they experience at home. And it's this is more about an adult's feelings than it really is about preserving kids' innocence. Um, it's about an adult not wanting to acknowledge that a kid's innocence is already eroded. Yeah, I mean, there's that. I, I guess I'm taking that as the sine qua non of our discussion. Like, that's something both you and I sort of agree about. I'm more thinking about the teacher's position, right, where they both want to give the kids the books and don't want to deal with right. the fallout of that desire. Like, the parents' reaction is something that's just sort of – that's a cloud out there and needs to be attacked in a different way. But this kind of soft censorship – it's mm -hmm. not even – I mean, the censorship's the wrong word because that's – it's such a false flag, right? It's, it's, it's not censorship because they, librarians and teachers have curatorial power. They have discretion to choose what goes in. Right. But these are the kinds of decisions that affect what kind of books that gets into kids' hands that we don't call censorship, but it is – it's, it differs by degree, not by kind. You know, that right. things, it's a prior, prior restraint, as you'd say in the law, of what gets put into the libraries. And that thing doesn't get talked about openly by people not in the profession and on the field, like people like us who are interested in mm -hmm. it, right? And the, I don't think parents and people involved in their libraries and their kids' lives say, you know, they're, they're reacting to what's there, but they're not thinking about what's missing, you know, what may not be there for right. them to have yeah, access we, to. 
We talked several months ago about a library that was moving to a system where it was a school library that was moving to a system where parents would be able to have online access yeah. to their kids' library records. And one of the librarians that's a Book Riot contributor told us, you know, offline that the way that she that her school system has this and the way that she gets around parents being able to see what their kids check out is that she has like a stash of books about quote unquote controversial mm. topics, you know, books about uh, sexual abuse books about gender identity, that sort of thing um, that parents might not want their kids to read or might not want to know that their kids are interested in that she has on essentially a non-existent soft checkout. Black market at the system. library. Right. You take this, you read it if you need it, you bring it back, you keep it for however long. There's no record of it. Um, and like librarians are doing that work, then most of the librarians that I know feel, and I think this is true for you too, feel very passionately about their sort of their first mission is yeah. to serve kids. No, I agree. Um, and that's what I'm trying to say. Like but, they, I right, think most librarians, in a terrible position. Yeah, it's a horrible position to be in. And there's a, there's a conversation that Mesner has with a librarian. It's, it's anonymized. So we don't know the special name. And, and she, that librarian explicitly says, I want to get in the kids' hands that need it, but I don't want to get in the kids' hands. It'll be damaged by it. Well, first of all, uh, the premise of there, you're going to be damaged by reading the fish that's like a metaphor with goldfish and open, I, yeah. I don't know you're going to damage anyone. Second one is the problem with the, even the black market thing, which is a it's a it's a nice hack. It's better than nothing. Is you're not going to know, right? That that mm-hmm. that 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 uh, that Caitlin's mom is is taking prescription pain meds too much. You may not right. know. Um, you're probably not going to. You're know. not going to know that uh, seven sixth grade um, Jimmy is. Uh, Maybe trans or thinking about it, or you know he's he's struggling, or try to figure out who she mm-hmm. and he is. You, you may not know, so the the prior knowledge requirement falls apart for these really sensitive issues that a kid's not going to say. You know what? Uh, you know what, um, uh, Miss April? Uh, I think I might be queer. Uh, do you have right. any? I just again, the librarians can do yeah, all these- they can to be out for, but there's also that that passive information seeking that we all know goes on that just doesn't feed it that way. And I'm not saying that. Right. And the, the books need to be quietly available. Yeah. And I don't know how you do it. Again, this is what yeah. I don't know how you to know, do it. It's just a very difficult problem. I think this is really a failure of, um, or like it's a thing that has fallen through the cracks for progressives. Um, like progressive parents need to be as interested in what's on their kids' library shelves and as vocal about it as the conservative parents are in in the opposite direction. It, it's it, it's uh, kind of like guns, to be honest. Like, they're like yeah. single-issue parents out there, right? Like, they're single-issue right. people about guns, and I don't want to get into politics. It's just out there, and whatever. You could probably guess my views. But, like, there there is single – like, there is the NRA, and then there's a bunch of us who are like, you know, I'm not so sure about guns. And, and the force and the focus – is so lopsided. And maybe that'll change. And maybe that's something we all need to think about changing. I totally agree with you. It's a great way of putting it. Yeah, it's a like, if you're a parent, and you are on the opposite side of this position of these parents who want things taken off of shelves, then it seems to me that an action that you should be taking is walking into your your kid's school library and saying, where are the books about being queer? Where are the books about being a kid who's dealt with sexual abuse? And how would a kid find them even if they are there? 
Right. Where are the kids about like where are the books about drugs? How would a kid be able to just, you know, make their way to a section and pull a book off a shelf and sit down in a quiet corner and discover that they're not alone? Right. Why aren't those books on these shelves? We want those books on these shelves. Um, and be if you be louder about it. Like what is evident here is that being loud is the effective way to be um, and back up the educators and back up the librarians. You know, I should be walking into my public library doing the exact same right. thing. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I think I think you're right. I think the only way that more room is made um, for books and for kids to have experience of reading books that reflect their own experience, because we hear all the time on Book Riot from readers like they'll tell a story about and I saw myself in the book for the first like yep. we hear this all the time along of many different vectors of identity and experience. Um, and fifth and sixth grade, I mean, that's such a difficult time. I mean, I used to think 13, 14, 15 was harder. I almost think now that 10, 11, 12 is harder. Because mm-hmm. you're starting to figure things out, but you don't have the agency. No one's telling you anything. Uh, very difficult time. Um, yeah, unless you are just super lucky and you have the parent who's like, Jimmy, you know, I think you might be trans. Here's a book about it. Um, you need access to sort of passive discovery yeah. of information. Right. Um, and grand, like we have the internet, but you got to know what to Google. Yeah. You know? <laughs> if you're 10, well, that's the other you thing. don't even yeah. have the language. That's the other thing is like there is some there is something to be said, I think, for blanket exposure to the whole class, even if some of their parents, even, even if most of their, or maybe all of them parents aren't addicted to heroin or whatever. Like this is a story that happens. It's a reality you may see in your friends and family or schoolmates mm-hmm. or teachers or people right. you run into. Uh, along the same lines, it's like gay people and trans people exist yeah. in the world. And everybody should be reading stories about them for all of the reasons that reading stories about all kinds of people are important. And for all of the evidence that there is that reading builds empathy and teaches us how to relate to people who aren't us and who don't have yeah. our same experiences. And that's these things have to happen in our classrooms and libraries, not just for the good of the kids who experience it firsthand. But yeah, I just I think that um, you know, progressive people have got to like, we have to take this up. Yeah, it's it's super interesting. Um, it's super interesting to think about it in those terms. Um, all right, you pick the next story. We probably have got time for one more. Where do you want to go here? Where do I want to go? We got through a lot of this, actually. Oh, let's talk about the, the strand. You want to do that? Oh, yes, Sorry, okay. I, I picked for you. I, did, I didn't. Yeah, need no, to. that's fine. I was feeling very like. Eh. <laughs> what restaurant? Where do you want to go? No, where do you want to go? I don't care. <laughs> yeah, where no, you, no exactly. not that place. You said you didn't Talk care. Could be yeah, good. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Serve me dinner, Jeff. Yeah, right. <laughs> Oh, you want me to do it? Oh, sure. I can. No, no, no. I, no, no, okay, I got okay, it. So okay. the Strand Bookstore, our you know, great friends at the Strand in New York, um, are partnering with Uber Rush to provide same-day delivery for their customers. So you can have books from the Strand delivered straight to your door on demand within like two to three hours, uh, anywhere between 96th Street and Battery Park, which, you know, only matters really to you if you live in New York and are going to take advantage yeah, Manhattan of Manhattan and even part, certain parts of Manhattan. But yeah, yeah right. and the last uh, Uber Rush pickup is at 6 p.m. So um, your first book starts at $12 mm-hmm. with each additional book at $2. And you can request up to 10 pounds of books <laughs> at a time, which like that's interesting. And then they try to explain to the reader user here what 10 pounds of books looks like. And so they say that's typically about two feet yeah they're using books. units with which i am not c- accustomed to dealing with <laughs> but, like, how many pages I, I, is that like i mean that I, be something, anyway, right but. how many pages are like you know i think i would have gone for like 10 pounds of books is roughly 15 paperbacks yeah, or whatever something like that. but uh it's interesting to think about two feet of books i did walk to the bookshelf in my living room and be like okay that's two feet of books speaking Got of it. weird trivia that connects the original first edition of ulysses weighed three and a half pounds so you could get <gasps> about three ulysses uh at this point <laughs> for this. 
That speaking of weird units of books. <laughs> that is, I'm not even going to tell you know yeah. that. Um, so if you need more than that 10 pound box delivered, the Strand also offers a flat fee delivery throughout New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, but the flat fee delivery fee for that is 50 bucks um, and outer boroughs um, are 75. Uh, and that's within two to three days. So if you are in Manhattan yep. and you need books same day, uh, like super immediately, and you would rather pay a premium than put on pants and leave the house, you can get that with Uber Rush. I think this is actually, I mean, I don't think this is leaving. The, I think this is leaving the office situation because like this is the prime. These are the prime mm-hmm. streets for where people work in Manhattan during the day. Ah. So you don't have to hike down to the Strand and try to get there on and off the train after work. You want a book to take home. You want to get something for work or something else. You can have it brought to you. It's like adding messenger service, which is a thing that only exists, I think, in the most de- – I mean, I, I don't even mm-hmm. know if San Francisco have messenger service, to be honest. But in New York, it's a big thing. People, I think this is probably going to be people on bikes. They don't say there's a big image of a dude on a bike. Uh, I'm assuming this is a messenger service of some, some kind going, that goes through Uber. Um, interesting, kind of a fun story. I think the the meta story it connects to is independent local bookstores doing things only independent local bookstores can, right? Yep. Be hyper locality. Um, you know, this is not something that Amazon is going to be offer and being able to offer anytime too, because it offers. I think Barnes and Noble offers same day delivery uh, mm-hmm. in Manhattan, um, but it's only in Manhattan, and it they they have to tell other Barnes and Noble customers. It's not available for you, right? You can't roll. It's hard to roll out nationwide. I think that those are things that they're pulling off of a Barnes and Noble shelf or like out of stock room. There could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that it's yeah, that's where that's coming from. But much like doing events and recommendations and events and community things, like really double down as an independent bookstore. Like what what advantage does my smallness and locality have? Like for a while, the narrative was well, physical bookstores are going to die because they don't have. The strengths, you know, these that towering giants, well, the towering giant now really has like Amazon. But, you know, in the old David Goliath, Gladwellian sort of thought experiment, it's like, okay, then what's your slingshot to the Goliath? Like, what do you have? And this is a slingshot. This is a hyper local specific service that's not going to fit all users. But you know what? The people that buy from you like this are probably going to be your high volume buyers. Mm-hmm. Like, these are the serious people, you know, there's, I'm sure there's an 80 20 power rule about bookstore patrons. Um, so you want to get those people that want to spend money with you the easiest way you can do it. I think it's super smart. I'd be curious to know if, if, uh, it were, I mean, like how many books are they going to deliver a day? Do they have a capacity? Do they have a, a ceiling for this? Very interesting. Yeah. Very cool. I guess that's our show. I think that that's is our it. show. I'm just thinking, I wish that this existed for me in Richmond. <laughs> I want, yeah. It, like, it seems like it could, right? Books. I mean, why couldn't yeah. it? Yeah, that's true. Somebody should just do it. We just got Uber X like a year ago. Oh, well, yeah. I don't know. I mean, you know, tertiary markets. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's hard for me to imagine a case in which, you know, I emergency need a book. Um, no, there's just emergency wanting. Yeah. But I guess it's one of those things where if you have some supply, maybe the demand follows. Like, I just don't even that's think true. in those terms. So, of course, I don't want this thing that doesn't exist because I don't even know it exists. Like, that's a very, you know, there's some circular logic mm-hmm. there that once it's available, maybe people will find out about it and use it. Yeah. You know, before we wrap up, we should say, um, again, that we've extended oh, speaking our of the VIP strand. Yeah, you missed registration yeah. Huh, yeah. for Book Riot Live through June 30th. There's an awesome, awesome lineup of speakers, including Walter Mosley, uh, Charlie Jane Anders, who's the founder of io9. I'm super excited. Who to wrote All there. the Birds in the Sky, which is awesome. One of my favorite fiction books of the year, which we'll get to that in a second, but keep going. Yeah. <laughs> um, great lineup there. Check out bookriotlive.com to see the full lineup. We're adding to it constantly. You get 40 bucks off your registration. Come hang out with us on November 12th and 13th. Uh, and we are going to our 
party at the Strand on Saturday night has sold out, but we will be uh, announcing another. There's a cool Friday night thing coming down the pipe. Friday so night thing yeah. coming. Uh, it's going to be a great weekend, and this forty dollars discount is only good through June thirtieth. So get the to bookriotlive.com with a quickness uh, and get your tickets. Plus, you'll also get a free Book Riot Live water bottle, and you'll get early RSVP access to any of the uh, limited seating panels and events that we offer. So we would love to meet you there. Speaking of favorite books of the year, take it. Yeah, away, Jeff. Le- um, we're collecting when one of our shows here coming up soon you got a, another week or so if you want to let us know what your favorite books of the year that you've read so far it has to be backlist it can be frontlist audio whatever it might be got some good responses in the comments um you can also shoot us an email podcast at bookriot.com um as uh, unsurprisingly unexpected the diversity and weirdness mm-hmm. and interest in and in range of titles being selected um it's kind of it's it's a weird situation to be not surprised by how surprised you are about the titles you're seeing. I, I guess um, I don't know if that's negative. I, I don't know if that's a negative capability or not. I'll have to ask the, the ghost of John Keats about that. Um, you can thanks to our sponsors, AudiblePodcast.com/slash/BookRiot. Get a free 30 day trial, and The Girls by Emma Klein. Go check that out too. A good summer read for those of you who are into like uh, cults and stuff like that going on. Uh, thanks so much to listening, and we'll talk to you later. Yeah, have a good one. Mm-hmm.